Well, good morning, Sandwich. I hope you're doing well this morning. If you're a guest with us, we'd like to extend our warmest of welcomes to you. My name is Jed, and it is an absolute privilege and honor to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, we're in the second week of our summer series entitled, I Promise. And every week, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at how God is not only a promise maker, but a promise Keeper, And we are going to be looking at the promises throughout Scripture that God makes and not only celebrate them for how they continue to point to his ongoing faithfulness today, but also consider how contextually they had so much significance to their original audiences as well. So before we go too far along, you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 14, which we'll get to shortly. But I would like to speak to a colloquial acronym that you may be familiar with. F-O-M-O, FOMO. What does that stand for? Fear of missing out. You probably have experienced this in some form or fashion as you were perusing through your anti, I mean social media. And, uh, you know, you're, you're scrolling through, you see like a picture of a cat, all right, regular day. You see a picture of your friend's baby, regular day. Then you see this weird video of your friend's baby being licked by her cat. And then, you know, it's a really regular day. But then, sure, sure enough, you find this post or you see these comments from some friends who were out the other night or are on their way to a vineyard and you weren't able to make it or even worse, you weren't invited and suddenly that feeling in your stomach gets a little weird. FOMO, fear of missing out. I want to ask you a question. When it comes to the promises of God... Are you experiencing any FOMO? Are, are you missing out? Do you feel as though when it comes to God's promises, you're, you're out of the picture, you're not a part of that story, that the secret's lost on you? Maybe every single week you show up to this place and you hear these worship songs, you hear the sermon, you hear these quotations from Scripture, but all you're left with is the juxtaposition of your questions of why I am not or at least it does not seem as though God's actively involved in my life. It's really easy to get pumped up during these tunes. But what about the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, where you can barely make it to Sunday, and you get this false sense of belonging and hope again? Is that you? Uh, maybe you hear God's words of the prophet Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, and you're wondering where your hope is, because everything in your past seems to indicate that your future is looking pretty gloomy. Uh, maybe you hear Jesus say to his disciples, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door shall be opened to you, and, and you're thinking about all the begging and the imploring and the asking God, heal this, take this away from me. And yet that diagnosis still hasn't been cleared up. You're not in remission yet. Or maybe that family member that you love is still in the presence of suffering. Maybe you hear Paul's words to the church in Philippi that I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you think about that person whom you love that is not walking with Jesus, that is wayward. And you wonder whether or not they will ever make it back home. 
the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And yet you're sitting here in this crowd of all these people and you feel, ironically, lonely. Uninvited to the party. Here's your first fill in the blank. No one likes to miss out. And yet isn't it that we tend to experience the promises of God in a lacking, deficient way? So here's the next fill in the blank, something that I'd like you to consider whenever you hear or think about the promises or the covenants or the good word of God. They are invitations to learn how to truly live. The promises of God are invitations. Yeah, unfortunately, we, we tend to see them as though they are checks written in our name that we just need to go up to the counter of the spiritual ATM or bank and just cash out and deposit. It's got my name on it, God. Here it goes. You said that this would happen. I'm at the counter waiting for you. And then nothing is received in return. And that is a faulty but unexpectedly natural way that we tend to deal with these words from Scripture. And part of that comes from, we, we, we prove texts, we, we take things in isolation, and we see them for something that they are not meant to be. But I'd like to say to you, if you're in that position, where you feel like you've come to the counter, and there's nothing in return, you're not alone. And if you wonder if the voices around you are seen with a confidence that you wish or think you'll never get, uh, there's a lot of us that are singing in hopes that the words that are coming out of our mouths will align with our hearts that aren't quite there yet. They're invitations to live. And the reason why I'm so glad that the promises of God aren't just these static things that we cash out, but in fact they are conversely invitations to live is because it gives every single one of us the opportunity to not miss out. Every single one of us. If you have a heart that's beating, then the promises of God are there for you to not just cash out, but to better actually walk into, to experience every single day. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, in saying that, I imagine some of you are really excited because we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And then on the other end of the spectrum, some of you guys are already just really concerned about what's going to happen from this stage. My hope and prayer is that we ground ourselves in what Jesus says and that we experience the power of the Holy Spirit based off of what Jesus the Christ actually has to say. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John, specifically in John chapter 14 through 16. And the reason why I started out with that fear of missing out illusion is because the disciples themselves, as they are in this final week with Jesus, not knowing that it is their final days, on this Thursday evening, about to partake in this Passover meal, they're fearful that they're going to miss out. You see, Jesus has been speaking to the fact that he is soon going to depart from them. In particular, he's spoken to his impending crucifixion. And the disciples, they don't like that because their hopes and their dreams that he as Messiah would instill this republic, this government, this kingdom where he is the king and the Romans will be overthrown and all their hopes and dreams of everything that they have not had for centuries will finally be found in him. So they are not too keen on this idea that Jesus is going to go away. 
and they're asking where he's going to go and how they can get there. He speaks in these terms that we're familiar with, John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, that's not where we're going to be, okay? So just a little bit further on, in verse 15, Jesus says this to them. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. Skip down to verse 25. He says, I have said these things to you while I am still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. If you're fearful of missing out, Jesus says, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say it right out of the gate. This is not going to be a comprehensive study on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Britt and I were, were talking about how we could do a whole series. This is one message. There's a lot that we are not going to cover and speak to, but what I hope we speak to this morning, again, continues to root itself in what Jesus is saying. And one of the things we need to do is consider what Jesus is actually saying that tends to be lost on us because of our English translation. Some of your translations say the Holy Spirit will be the advocate, as mine does. Some of your translations say the comforter or the helper. What Jesus is describing here comes from this Greek word parakaleo, which means to come alongside. And the Greek word for what is translated in our scriptures as advocate or counselor or helper, help, helper is parakletos, which is actually a technical legal term. And we can speak to it in the English as paraclete. Say paraclete. paraclete. Not parakeet, paraclete. 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 Now, there's a reason why this term is so important. And Jesus uses it in this noun function only here in this stream of John, verse 14 through 16. And then the Apostle John uses it again in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, If any of you sins, we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ, who is the perpetuation for our sins, not only our sins, but the sins for the whole world. So it's spoken to of there. And that alludes to the fact that this word, paraclete, not parakeet, is a judicial technical defense attorney type term. So here's the scene. You're in the courtroom and you stand before the judge and you're trying to plead your case, but you really don't have anything to say because you were caught red-handed and you were guilty. It's your fault. You stand there worthy of condemnation. The guilt that you have is real and you ought to be sentenced to something that is going to be not so fun. And Jesus uses this term to describe the Holy Spirit coming alongside to not just comfort us, not just help us, but to actually say, I've got this. Your Honor, I'm presenting a case that will be compelling enough to you. This individual that stands here is certainly worthy of the sentence, but it's been taken care of. The punishment it's deserved, but they don't have to suffer it. Why? What does Jesus do? He suffers the punishment. You see, here's the deal. You and I, hopefully you've heard this enough, we're not worthy 
We're not good enough. As much as we can appreciate ourselves and our gifts and the fact that God loves us, He loves us so much that He would send His Son to stand in our place. And so our right standing with God, our righteousness is given to us. We don't earn it ourselves. There's nothing that I could do to earn this right standing with God. I could stand there in the courtroom and no one should come to my defense. No one. I've seen how I can treat strangers. My wife lives with me. My kids know what I'm like as a parent. I've had classmates. I've seen people know I don't deserve it. And as great as you may be, you don't deserve it either. And yet, is that not the goodness and the grace of God? So that's the scene, right? That God sends his son to stand in our place. And that's the traditional way of understanding that. And it's really, really important. But I want you to understand that Jesus' introduction of this legal term is very fitting in the stream of John's gospel. Because as we will find in a few chapters, Jesus is going to be brought before court after court. This innocent man before these judges, before these accusers. And here is the irony. All of the disciples who have walked with him for three and a half years, who have been at his side, who have apparently or supposedly learned from him, who have followed and been in step with him, who have said that we will be with you to the death, every single one of them, when Jesus is standing before judgment, they're gone. You see, the thing about the Holy Spirit being provided for us is it so contrasts the fact that at their opportunity to come to Jesus' side, to his defense, to say he is an innocent man, every single one of them is gone. That should strike you and me. What should strike us more, however, is the amazing grace of God. I mean, Jesus himself says, if you deny me before men, then I will deny you before the Father. And in the narrative of every single gospel, the disciples do just that. They deny Jesus in word and in deed. And yet who are the ones after the resurrection who are brought in and then commissioned? The ones who denied him. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. And so if you find yourself in a place where through your lifestyle, through your actions, through your words, even if you've confessed saving faith in Jesus the Christ, Jesus being Lord, and yet you continue to deny him based off of your own actions and your own way of living, I encourage you to do one of two things. One, you and I should probably repent from that have our minds changed because of his grace and his love and seek to walk in obedience in another direction. But number two, to recognize that again, if it is his grace, it's always just going to be his grace. There's nothing that you and I could do that would preclude us or prevent us or separate us so far that the presence and the love of Almighty God could not take care of what you and I could not take care of for ourselves. So that's the context, all right? That's why this term is so important. It's not just so we could talk about the Greek. No, 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 no. It was in the narrative of John. It's got a particular place. So, here is what we're going to do. Did I give you that second fill in the blank? That the Holy Spirit? Okay, I did give you that. All right. So, we're going to go into four things now 
after talking about the context of this, that the Holy Spirit invites us to relearn. Right? So here's the first thing that the Holy Spirit invites us to relearn. It's that faith in Jesus Christ is the greatest miracle. Faith in Jesus Christ is the greatest miracle. Now, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, so we should probably talk about miracles. I'm not here to stand on the stage to tell you that there are no miracles. There are miracles. People can, in fact, be healed just as Jesus healed. But I would caution you and I to remember that every time there is healing in the Scriptures, it is so that it would affirm and reaffirm that Jesus is Lord, that He is capable of doing what no one else could do. And so His power, even that He gives to the disciples, is always meant to bring Him back to glory. It's always so that people who are far from God in their doubt can see physically the manifestation of His power and then be brought to His presence to be divinely persuaded. Faith in Jesus Christ is the greatest miracle. But I'm not just talking about this saving faith like Paul speaks to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he says anyone who speaks Jesus Christ as Lord can only do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not just talking about that one time in your life where we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because if that is the culmination of our faith, then we've missed it. You see, faith in Jesus Christ is the greatest miracle because every single day I'm prone to doubt him. I'm prone to doubt him not just mentally, I'm prone to doubt him with how I live. Daily, I deny the fact that he died for my sins and rose from the dead and invited me to walk in the new life. Every single day, you and I need that incredible faith and power of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that actually says, I really do believe. And if we continue to think that faith in him will just produce something in us that will give us these wild experiences, may I again caution you to remember that there is nothing better or more wild than just the experience of learning how to trust Jesus every single day with the stuff that no one thinks matters. And in fact, I can think about some people in this room who have wondered about God's face and the presence of their physical ailments and their lack of healing and have wondered whether or not there's something wrong with them if their faith is not sufficient enough. And you know what? The irony is those people who have not received healing and yet continue to trust in Jesus and not forsake him, I don't know if I can find any greater faith. So if you find yourself in that place and you think, you're missing out because the things that are happening at these big conferences where droves of people are experiencing the living God and you in your regular life have not felt as though you've stepped across that line, I caution you, don't look to the conferences. Look to Christ. He's got you. Steve, Kelly, he's got you. Julie, Ben, He's got you. All over this room, there are people here who need to remember. He's got you. He's right along your side. You know why I'm convinced that we need to go back to that over and over? It's not just because of the culture and the time that we live in. I mean, Jesus, he, he's confronted with this himself. John chapter 6, verse 28. He says to the crowds, 
Uh, actually, they say first, then they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him and whom, in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Are you kidding me? <laughs> he just said that the work of God is to what? Believe. To believe. Uh, Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine and believes in the one who has sent me does not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Right now, there's something right now, it's not just eternity. Jesus is inviting us, the Holy Spirit is inviting us to partake in life right now. So here's the next fill in the blank. I hope you hear it loud and clear. God is already up to something. You know, one of the things that, that I've just had to try and have some, some patience for is when I'm in settings and, and we start praying in a way that sounds like God's not here. <laughs> Like, we're welcoming him here. That we're inviting him to do something. And it's so backwards and prideful. I, he's been working. He's been attempting to call us and persuade us and move us and challenge us. And yet, we, in our ears covered, eyes closed type of life, we just, we're missing it. And so, when I say, or when I hear people say that the Holy Spirit was thick, in this place, I can understand the sentiment there, but may I remind you that, that maybe uh, we just got more aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit was already trying to get us to recognize his weight and his glory, and that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will glorify whom? Jesus Christ. That every time we try and do something apart from Christ experientially or worshipfully, it's so easy. I mean, that line is just, it's so easy to go just a few degrees off to get us to a place where Jesus might not even recognize what we're trying to do. And again, this is not an indictment on any one particular way. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is incredible and powerful, and we have missed out in many ways, but I would just believe that, unfortunately, we think that his movement and his promise to move will just come in these places and these massive arenas when he's actually more concerned about how during the week when I'm making a sandwich for my son and spreading his peanut butter, I consider that I'm serving him. And that my call to learn how to be a better dad and husband isn't apart from my relationship with Christ. And if I think I can have these big Disney-like phantasmic experiences apart from the everyday learning to trust Him, I've missed it. And I'm trying to cash the wrong check. So here's your next fill in the blank. This is really important. Our sanctification is not merely for our own sake. It's not merely for our sake. Sanctification, this huge theological term, that we would become holy as he is holy, that this process of salvation and deliverance is ongoing, is not just for us. Uh, in the month of June, maybe you're a big sports fan like I am, and you've seen that there have been draft after drafts, right? There was the NHL draft and the MLB draft and then the NBA draft, and I kept close watch 
on the NBA draft because, you know, everyone knew who was going to get picked first, right? Zion Williamson. Uh, he goes to the New Orleans Pelicans. He'd wanted to go to the New York Knicks, but the lottery balls didn't fall in their favor, and so now he's got to figure out life in New Orleans, which doesn't sound too bad. I mean, I hear the food is great. So when I think about sanctification, I think that, uh, that illusion, it's close. Now, Zion Williamson, the reason why he was picked is because he's an incredible basketball player. All right, that kid can soar effortlessly, and when I play basketball, I do not look like Zion Williamson. Okay, so in that sense, it's very different because Zion is chosen because of his skill, and in the family of God, you and I are not chosen because of our skill. We're just loved by God because he loves the world, and he wants to bring it to himself. But in the next step, our sanctification, our process of sanctification functions very similarly. You see, Zion Williamson was picked by this team. He's been given this identity, yes? His identity is he is going to play for the New Orleans Pelicans. At least that's the hope. That was the plan. But his reality, in many ways, he will get to decide how he lives in that identity. He can choose not to show up for practice. You talking about practice? <laughs> One sports fan out there. Come on, AI. <laughs> Come on. He can choose to go to the games and play half-heartedly. He can choose to have a poor attitude. He can choose to play really, really hard. He gets to choose. And that has to be one of the most important lessons that you and I learn about the sovereignty of God. That in his sovereignty, he gave us choice and responsibility. We get to choose. So even though he has declared us righteous, even though he has saved us, you and I can miss out on the whole wild, fun, incredible experience of learning how to trust him day by day. Look at what Jesus says earlier on in John chapter 13. He says it's a new commandment. We've heard these words so much that it sounds so old, but, but think about this. Think about this identity and reality that are forged together in this great opportunity. He says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, we ought to recognize that when the stream of this gospel, there's going to be a lot of reasons for the disciples to grow frustrated with each other. They're probably going to point fingers as to who was supposed to step up to be at Jesus' side when he was at his darkest hour. But all of them failed. And yet if he models a love that says, despite your denial, despite your forsaking, despite your lack of faith, I am choosing to commission you. I am choosing to love you. That's a pretty powerful model of love. And I'm pretty sure we need to hear that more. You know, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, the imagery of fruit's really important there. It would be really weird if a tree had fruit and just said, look at me, I've got all these great pieces of fruit so loving. I have so much self-control. Look at all this joy that I have. How silly would it be if that tree were not planted so that passerbys could come and experience self-control, so that people passing by could not experience patience, 
You see, if the Holy Spirit, if the presence of God is actually living and active in each and every single one of us, then we will recognize that there are deficiencies in our lives and we will be asking and begging and pleading that that stuff would change. I beg God. I beg God for an awareness of how he is calling me to be with my wife and kids because I know that so many times I have done a crummy job. And when Mal and I stay up late at night and we reflect on the day and we share tears about that moment where we lost some of our kids and we had to apologize again, we can also travel back the eight short years that we've been married where we've talked about divorce, where we've talked about giving up those six short years of being parents where we have talked about wanting to give our kids up. Wait, never mind. We haven't talked about that, have we? <laughs> we can talk about those things and we can see the grace and love and mercy of God and his patience to us. And the fact that to be made holy like he is, is for the sake of our kids and one another. And wouldn't it be incredible if every single person in this room stewarded that, decided, I'm going to live in that identity. I'm going to choose not just to say that Jesus is Lord, I am going to actually, the effort's not a bad word, I'm going to do hard work. And I'm going to work to live into my identity so that my reality explodes with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Here's your next fill in the blank. Holiness, as Jesus demonstrates, then moves toward the unholy. Here's the paradox. Here's the surprise. Here's the scandal of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is that in his kingdom, we do not have a king who is looking to separate himself from the peons and the scrubs and the people in the country who are undeserving of his royal presence. No, 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 no. This king goes to be with those who would typically be set outside. The holiness of God that he cannot be in the presence of sin is supposed to set up the scandal of the incarnation. We in the West love our rational, logical, systematic theology, and there's a place for that. But do you recognize that our Bible was not written in Europe? It wasn't written in that context. And so the stuff that we have tried to logically make sense of is illogical. That's why Paul says it's foolishness. It should not make sense. Because if it made sense, then I wouldn't get to be here. And you wouldn't either. But the holiness of God moves towards the unholy. You see what Jesus does. It's religiously wrong. It's religiously irreverent. He goes to be with the unclean, which in his society, in his customs, in his religious tradition would be the most audacious, wrong, terrible thing to do. You know, when Jesus is in Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, and he says a prophet will not be accepted in his hometown, the reason why he speaks those words is because there is a religious presence there and a sense of ownership of what's religious and what's holy. And so in the very next scene, you know what Jesus does? He leaves that place, and he goes to heal a man with demons. <sighs> Guys, when we read the Gospels, I know it's really easy to, to see the way that it's written, and it doesn't, you know prick our literary interests of the 21st century. It's not written like Harry Potter. It's not supposed to be like that. But if we pay attention, if we read carefully, 
if we cling to the words that Jesus is saying and we see what comes next, there's a reason why the Gospels can be so fun to read. It's because Jesus is connecting dots to a picture that does not make sense to us. And it shouldn't. So here's my second to last word for us. If the Holy Spirit's calling us to, to move towards the unholy, then really the Holy Spirit's inviting us to slow down and right live but strike it through and replace it with walk. You know, when I was a kid, if you asked my dad what I was like when I was a child, uh, he said I had one speed, and it was run. It was fast. I would just run from one place to the next. Apparently, I never walked. <laughs> I, I just was so concerned, or I was just a ball of energy. Who knows? And I'm getting payback in the form of three kids. He reminds me of that. I, I, I have payback in my three boys. I just ran from place to place to place, and I was fearful of missing out, something like that. And even though the imagery of running is used throughout Scripture, Right? Hebrews 12 talks about running the race, right? With perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Even though that's there, even though Paul speaks about how runners run a race in order to win a prize, run in such a way that you will not be disqualified, even though that language is there, you know, literally hundreds of times over, you know the word that's used, the imagery that's used? It's walk. We don't get that much today because we get in our cars and we drive. There's something about walking. You know, in the Old Testament, wisdom literature, wisdom is personified in a way that eventually would be deeply tied to the traditions of belief about the Holy Spirit. And when I think about wisdom, one of the alliterations that I play in my mind to, to, to keep me there is that wisdom is when our words and our ways begin to sync up. You see, when I think about my words and what I say from this stage, it would be the most unwise thing for me to do, to say this stuff and then apart from this stage for my ways to be completely out of alignment. I'm not perfect. Every single one of us is fallen and broken, and yet that's why God's redeeming and restoring us so that we don't keep living like that. Because think about how funny it would be just be like, oh, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is awesome, I love Jesus, give me the Holy Spirit. But it's like, I'm not walking I'm not saying something and then experiencing the power of being in step with him. So here's your last question. When we want to think practically about this, and hopefully you haven't just been hearing about supernatural stuff, you've been thinking very, very practically, which is ironically incredibly supernatural and spiritual. Here's your question. What places or people, excuse me, people, places, or perspectives, perspectives have you too quickly run from, run past, or run over? If the Holy Spirit is calling and challenging us to be as Jesus is, and I love that first song we sang, Holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you. Open up my eyes and wonder, so then show me who you are and fill me with your love and lead me, I don't forget, in, the, in your love to those around me. The idea of becoming holy like God is to move because we find that's what Jesus did for us. If I want the Holy Spirit, if I want to be set apart, 
So number one, I believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that I don't deserve his forgiveness or his grace, that I can't earn it by my own power, by myself, that he was an innocent man put to death, but he's the victorious one. He's the one that succeeds. He is the one that pays that penalty. He is that sacrifice. He's, he's it. Not me, not you. And we can confess that and believe that. But number two, who wants the power of the Holy Spirit? But in saying we believe it, would we learn to be it? Would we begin to experience the power of the Holy Spirit by walking in step with him and not being fearful of who he might bring us to or what he might bring us toward or what conversations we're going to have or what friends we're going to have. I don't know. We'd recognize he's got us. Let's pray.